From the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. This episode... We're joined by my old pal, John Lawrence. Uh, John was Nancy Pelosi's chief of staff. Um, and so we spent a long time talking about what it was like to set up Nancy Pelosi's last office. Later this week, Democrats will select who they want to become speaker. She And Mrs. Pelosi is a prohibitive favorite at this point. Um, you can get John's thoughts on you know, staffing and how you build an office uh, and how Mrs. Pelosi thought, thinks about things like the president. John has a new book out called The Class of 74, Congress After Watergate and the Roots of Partisanship. Okay, here we go. Sean Lawrence. John Lawrence, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks very much, Theo. It's good to be with you. Give me a little bit of the landscape as you came into the election of 2006. What's the world look like? What's... Uh, the House Democratic Caucus look like? What's um, where, you know, what was the state of affairs on election day? I think that we realized uh, in the 2006 election cycle that was going to be a key uh, election for Democrats in the House. We had been in the minority at that point for 12 years. Uh, we had, uh, under Mrs. Pelosi, run the first uh, effort at a nation- nationalized House campaign in 2004, something we called a new partnership, which is a bit of a dry run. Uh, we didn't have enough time to really put it together, but in 2006, we had. So we had put together something called the 6406 package, yep. uh, something called a new direction. And we assembled that package with the idea that we would only include legislation that we knew would pass on a bipartisan basis if it got to the floor. Issues like implementation of the 9-11 commission recommendations or raising the minimum wage or uh, lobbying reform. And the idea there was to be able to make the argument that there was the possibility for bipartisan legislation. It was the obstructionism of the Republican leadership that prevented these issues from coming to the floor in the first place. And so if you elect Democrats, we'll bring these issues to the floor, they'll pass, and we will show that we can govern. Uh, So that was going on on one hand. It was a coordinated effort between the House and the Senate, which in and of itself is no small achievement, (laughs) uh, and I think possible in part because of the high level of trust between Mrs. Pelosi and Senator Reid. At the same time, uh, it was the third uh, cycle of uh, elections under President Bush, uh, so a very vulnerable time for Republicans. Uh, He was particularly vulnerable, I think, around the question of Iraq, where the war was not going well. Uh, There was the deterioration of the situation in Iraq. There was uncertainty in Afghanistan, talk of a potential surge, so even more troops being put into Iraq. A lot of dissatisfaction, both in the public and even within the military, thinking that this was not a successful strategy. So Iraq was a very much of a motivating issue and a unifying issue for Democrats, even Uh, strong pro-defense Democrats, people like Ike Skelton. 
For example, the prospective chairman of Armed Services or Jack Murtha, the chairman of the Defense Subcommittee on Appropriation, were, had, had evolved into pretty strong critics of uh, the war, and in Murtha's case, even an advocate for... Yeah, he made like a pretty public statement for election day. Oh, yeah, he, he, he was very, very strong, very strong. Partly it was because they felt that the, the war was not being managed well, it was unwinnable, and they felt that the troops were at risk. Sure. And so it was a pro-troop, but not necessarily a pro-Bush policy sure. uh, that, that they had evolved into. And then I think the other issue that really worked uh, in our in our favor in 2006 was the, the deepening, what Mrs. Pelosi called the deepening culture of corruption. Uh, there had been uh, the Abramoff scandals that had exploded, which really revealed not only uh, the uh, problems within Republican uh, lobbying groups uh, and their relationship to Republicans on the Hill, but some of that corruption crept very directly into uh, the office of then Majority Leader Tom DeLay, who everybody understood was really the, the person running the Republican caucus. And then uh, late in the election cycle in 2006, there was another explosion of corruption issues around the uh, behavior of Mark Foley and his uh, alleged solicitation of pages for sure. inappropriate activity. That problem quickly escalated as it became more and more evident that the Republican leadership, up to and including, uh, it appears, the Speaker, uh, Dennis Hastert, were aware of some of the allegations going back quite a long time involving uh, Mr. Uh, Foley. And so that played again into this notion that the Republican leadership was a problem. The Republican leadership was issues sort of came together in a, in a pretty dramatic fashion. When you add that to just the general fatigue over uh, what was never that popular in administration in terms of the Bush administration, it just was a it was a an excellent climate for. And they bought like uh, the Bush administration bought a political break in that um, uh, nobody would wish 9/11 to happen, but his response to 9/11 was seen as a very as was a was a. Uh, a high watermark, and that happened to also be around the time of the midterm elections. So I think he actually, his first midterm actually picked up some seats, which is pretty rare. So when you now you're sitting on a playing field of seats that maybe he probably would have lost in another universe um, in the first cycle sitting out there, and now you also have this additional um, ethics stuff and, and Tom Foley and all the rest. Of that. I assume that's part of the soup that came together. Sure. And yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, his his gaining seats in the 2002, that first midterm was, I think, one of twice since the World War II that that had happened. And you have to remember, right after 9-11, Bush's popularity, remember, he lost the popular vote, uh, but his popularity had soared to 90%. Uh, in the in the wake of the 9/11 attacks, and then over time dissipated significantly. He he won re-election in 2004. Uh, Democrats were highly motivated uh, by the time 2006 came around, uh, and they were unified around the six for 06, uh, which was frankly as much a disciplinary force for our members not to go off talking about 18 different things as it was a marketing device that worked significantly in terms of influencing public opinion. Sure. I mean, I, first of all, it's a podcast. We can talk about whatever we want. <laughs> Second of all, um, I do think when I talk to um, members that came in then or members who are familiar with it or former staff, they do remember the 6 for 6. Most people can name all six. Some people can't name all you know, name four or five of them. So to that point, like it was kind of low-hanging fruit. It was also like 
good discipline for members. Like, okay, what are you going to do when you get to Washington or candidates? Well, here's four or five things I think I'm going to do. And it just gave them an immediate kind of um, uh, rallying cry that said, you know, yeah, okay, it sounds good. We're, we're for less corruption. We're for, you know. Um, and as I said, it, it was not something that immediately set party against party. It was basically, these are issues that significant numbers of Republicans ended up voting for. Uh, and so you didn't have to fall into the hyper-partisan basket uh, in order to support this democratic uh, uh, platform. So, so we get to election night. Um, my my memory is it's it's later, like maybe ten or eleven o'clock. It becomes obvious that the house is flipped. I, I think we probably had a decent sense of it, but but around that time, um, you're standing next to your boss, future speaker of the house, first female ever to do it. What are you thinking? Well, you know, by training, I'm a historian. So I always uh, had a, I was wearing two hats to some extent. Uh, and this is then reflected in, in what I've written since then, which is some history about Congress, um, that I was both thinking about the historical significance, first of all, of regaining control and what that meant, uh, and then and the significance of the first uh, woman speaker. Uh, but then I was also thinking of, what this was going to mean in terms of our legislative and political demands that were going to be made of us. And, and I guess maybe I even was thinking about some of the personal demands on me, although I had no idea how extensive those demands would ultimately It's be. a little like the, you know, the dog catching the car kind of situation, right? You know, now you actually got to do the things you tell you said people you're going to do. Okay. So from election day, uh, the re this is really why I'm interested in talking about this. So you, you went to go build a speaker's office. Um, uh, Mrs. Pelosi had not been speaker. Um, she has her own congressional district in California to deal with. She's got the off the, the parts of the job that are running the kind of House Democrat Party. Um, and the other part is this bigger um, kind of states person role um, that she had both by the fact that she was speaker and also now she's this, you know, the most powerful woman in the world and all the rest of that stuff. She's in line to be president. Security details change, things like that become. So, talk me through. How did you think through those those three in particular? Kind of the the home stuff, um, the how do we run the Democrats, and then how do we deal with the stateswoman stuff? Those are all pretty clearly distinct, and in some cases, they're in conflict with each other. And Mrs. Pelosi has the advantage, of course, of representing San Francisco, but the political objectives, the political priorities of a lot of her constituents are very problematical when you put them in the context that she now has to be the leader of the National Democratic Party. And the National Democratic Party, by definition and historically, is always a coalition party. Uh, the reason, of course, you win the majority in 2006, just as in 2018, is not because you win a slew of liberal seats. Uh, you already had yeah, those. Yeah. It's because you've won a series of more marginal seats that you've taken away from uh, Republicans. And to win on the floor to promote your legislative package, uh, you're going to have to almost definitely disappoint people who are in the uh, in the your constituency and expect that somehow her elevation to the speakership means that everything they want and everything that she wants is going to translate into national policy. And that tends not to be the case. It is why I think as a matter of course, it is always a good idea to have a leader, certainly a speaker, who is from a relatively safe district to the extent to which that person cannot go home 
and explain that um, there's a distinction between what I personally support and what I have to be able to pass uh, through the Congress, through the House and through the Senate and get signed by the president. There, there is a difference there. I think probably the most graphic example uh, in, in that respect was over the funding of Iraq. Yeah. Uh, so she now inherits the responsibility as speaker of, for example, passing appropriation bills, which by their nature are going to include funds for Iraq. We sure. have tens of thousands of troops there. Um, and, she, and to bring people back to just a little bit of this is the beginning of the code pink stuff and everybody's, just, you know, the protests are all over the place about the, the war. Um, in fact, I think uh, maybe you, you, you'll, you'll talk about this, but I think she had like a full protest at her house in San Francisco for like months or something. <laughs> Years, actually. There was the, so the code pink activists who wanted an immediate withdrawal from from Iraq, which if, I think if Mrs. Pelosi could have snapped her fingers, she probably would have thought that was a good, you know, a good idea. Yeah. Very difficult situation where she had to go home and explain to the code pink demonstrators who were pretty much outside her house, her entire speakership. And, you know, they were they were leaving uh, items and uh, uh, drying their clothes on the bushes outside. Her house. <laughs> I mean, it was really a very problematical. And, and I might add, there were some legitimate security concerns. Okay. You know, they would publish her home address. And as you mentioned, she was in line to the presidency. But if, from our standpoint, she was the Speaker of the House of Representatives and she and her family were... Uh, you know, subject to potentially uh, uh, security concerns that we had to be very, very aware of and, and make plans about. So that was that was certainly, I think, one of the areas where that that responsibility to your home district versus your national responsibilities uh, most graphically came into play. And she certainly would work on around issues of accountability around uh, Iraq and uh, timetables and conditions that needed to be met, but she could not satisfy the most um, uh, vocal of her critics back home who, who were saying, you know, any money that was voted for Iraq put you in the same category as, as uh, George Bush. Uh, yeah. that, that was not reality. So that was certainly one, one challenge. Uh, I think another is we had to we had to build the speaker's office. I mean, suddenly our staff expanded significantly. There were some areas that uh, we had been engaged in that simply grew, such as advance, uh, press, uh, certainly legislative uh, activity. Uh, but then there were some new ones, as you mentioned, security. There's a different security protocol for the speaker of the house than there is for the minority leader of the house, and we had to. Uh, learn as did she to put up with 24-hour security sure. and extra cars and all those uh, considerations that not only go with being speaker, but in her case, one with being a very highly visible speaker and, uh, as the first woman, but also as uh, somebody who had been uh, elevated both by our uh, by our candidates, but also by Republicans, yeah, exactly. To exactly. use her as the the face of the Democratic opposition. Um, there were there are a whole slew of activities that go from dealing with the superintendents and the architects. For example, she made decisions about uh, changing the house podium so that it could accommodate disabled people for yeah. the first time. There were issues. That's that right. You run the physical operation of the house too, right? You're, you're um, as speaker of the house, you're in charge of um, I, I remember there being a, a, a big deal of a location of a bathroom and a location of a, of a, um, um, as you mentioned, the, 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 the change of the actual podium to let people with handicapped uh, wheelchairs be able to get up there. Right. Um, yeah, you are, as 
as speaker, you know, the, the speaker is the only officer of the House, the only officer for that matter of the entire legislative branch, who is specified in Article One of the Constitution. Uh, so technically, the speaker is represents the Congress. When you go down to a meeting in the White House, for example, uh, there will, uh, if you have the meeting of the Big Five, the reason it's the Big Five instead of the Big Four is you'll have the majority leaders of both chambers, the minority leaders of both chambers, but you'll also have the Speaker, and the Speaker stands alone uh, and in in uh, in representing the legislative branch, and at least in our case, both under President Bush and uh, President Obama would always sit to the president's right hand and would be recognized first. So there is that unique uh, feature. But yes, there's there's uh, even though the, the, the speaker supposedly is the head of the legislative branch, I assure you, it comes no surprise to you. That really extends only to the House. The Senate does, the Senate does not welcome <laughs> Mr. Reed that was not reporting to her. No. <laughs> and we do not allocate rooms, for example, based on uh, for speakership on the uh, Senate side, but you do in terms of sure. of, uh, of the House side and decisions that she makes. For example, at one point she decided to move the statue of Robert E. Lee from an honored place in statutory hall to a less uh, high-profile place in the uh, in the crypt. Uh, those are decisions the Speaker makes and that, that other people carry out. You you get to a point uh, with the approval of, of your caucus, of course, uh, you get to appoint the officers of the House, so the sergeant-at-arms and the clerk, uh, the, the chaplain of the House, and the, uh, the administrative uh, chief of the House, the head of the Office of Administration. So there are a whole series of these responsibilities that happen, uh, as well as your own party responsibilities. You've got to start putting people onto committees. Sure. And you've got to figure out what is, the, what is it that members need, uh, as opposed to what is it that members want, uh, because everybody wants everything, including their best committee assignments, and then waivers so that they can get onto other committees that they also <laughs> want. I remember it being a big joke that, uh, you know, as soon as you gave somebody something, uh, they wanted something else. You know, they, they didn't view what they had just gotten as necessarily uh, a, a, a gift or a, a reward. They viewed that as now was their right, that was under their belt. Now let's see what else. Uh, we can get. And uh, that goes on, you know, through dozens of people because mm -hmm. you not only have a lot of new members, but you have a lot of new slots on the committees because now you've become the majority and you mm -hmm. have maybe two thirds of the seats on the committee rather than one third of the seats. So there are, all, there are simultaneously uh, all of these legislative uh, issues you've got to uh, start planning in that six for a six, which she promised we would enact in the first hundred hours, not the first hundred days, which is typically yeah, um, right. what is done, but the first hundred hours. Uh, you also have to plan these administrative and organizational features, both of your caucus and then of the House of Representatives as a whole. Um, and it, it goes from you know the sublime of, uh, of planning the legislative agenda to the ridiculous of you know who's going to get a fourth office on the fifth floor of the Longworth <laughs> building, and it all pretty much lands in the in the office of the speaker to make those decisions. So um, we'll go from the ridiculous of who gets to but use which which um, parking space, which is. Uh, literally a decision that goes up to the speaker's office um, to 
She's elected by her caucus. She becomes the first speaker. She has a very famous picture of her kind of raising the gavel. And there's a bunch of children around her. I think a lot of people, myself included, you know, were really proud of that moment. Um, she talks about soon thereafter going to the White House. And um, she's talked about this a bunch of times, right? um, that she felt um, a huge weight when she first walked into the White House for that time as speaker. She'd been there a whole bunch for meetings of the big four or five. She had been there a bunch for meetings um, as the minority leader. So it wasn't wasn't walking in the Roosevelt room wasn't a weird thing, but she now had a different weight on her shoulders. I suspect you went with her to those meetings. Did you feel like it was different? Oh, it was it was definitely different. You know, I think Mrs. Pelosi always was of two minds. Uh, on the one hand, um, she didn't want to draw uh, an, uh, an excessive amount of attention to the fact that she was a woman, you know, sure. uh, because she was the speaker. She didn't expect any special treatment. Uh, and she didn't uh, demand any special treatment. She really wanted to be viewed as the institutional, the constitutional officer that she was. And at the same time, uh, it was sort of inescapable as you look around the room uh, that uh, the only other women in the room are not at the table. Yeah. And uh, certainly the higher up you get uh, when you when you get to the to the top five, or the top seven, it depends who's, who's invited to a particular meeting, she's there by herself. And it, you would have to be uh, really uh, just asleep not to recognize that this is um, the first time in history that uh, any person has been that close to uh, the, the uh, top levers of power. And, you know, she uh, very importantly, and I think remains the case uh, today, it's, there's some people say, oh, that's so exciting. You know, she's in direct line to the presidency. She wasn't interested in being president of the United right, States. Right, okay, right. She's the head of the, Congress, of the legislative branch of government. Mm -hmm. And uh, she has uh, and fully understands uh, the congressional role that Congress plays, both legislative and in terms of oversight and holding the executive branch accountable. And, uh, you know, she felt that uh, to a large extent uh, that had suffered under Republican leadership, that the public, uh, that voters, the press had lost confidence in the leadership of Hastert and the leadership of DeLay and the leadership of Gingrich, and that it was part of her responsibility, uh, both as it, within the House itself and in terms of reestablishing the congressional branch as a co-equal branch of government with the executives, to elevate that, uh, to elevate that role of, of the Congress. And that was very much, I think, on her mind as she, as she began her speakership. You know, the other thing I would I would note, I mean, I I had some tangential uh, dealings with her while she's speaker. Um, her respect for the office of the presidency, no matter who held it, um, George Bush, Barack Obama were the two presidents that she was around for. Um, uh, she had a tremendous respect for the office of the presidency. I remember there was a skirmish back and forth of whether or not President Obama would be invited to give a give a uh, State of the Union speech, and you know had to go back and forth. And, um, I guess it's technically the White House asks to come to the Hill, right? And it seems to me, at least my memory is, that she would always grant that and had it always carried with it, like, no, 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 the president, he's the president of the United States. Um, will you talk about that a little bit? I think that's really the case. I was struck uh, every time uh, I was in the room with her, uh, as I usually was, when she would be speaking to the president on the phone, uh, how 
regardless of who that president was, when she picked up that phone and she said, Mr. President, uh, it, you could hear in her voice um, that she recognized the significance of what she was doing. Uh, you know, as the conversation evolved, she would occasionally, uh, it, it, would, it could get uh, confrontational, it could, and that regardless of who was the president, because she was standing up for her institutional interests and sure. the interests of her members, um, which was predominant for her, but that initial uh, uh, conversation was always highly respectful. I remember uh, in, in fairly instructive in this regard. Uh, the first time that uh, Senator Obama came to her office uh, when she when he after his election, I think I'm pretty sure it was in December of uh, 2008. So he had been elected. He had not yet been. Uh, sworn in as president, and he came to the office to talk about certain key issues and particularly the stimulus that we were going to, yeah. we were already actually putting together and would enact uh, fairly quickly in early 2009. And uh, the president-elect came into the room, it was just a few, of, I think there were a couple of us who were in the room at the time, and uh, it was her, her office, the chairs weren't configured exactly the way the president-elect wanted, and so he began moving the chairs around, and she said, Mr. President, please, don't, don't do that. And he said, that's okay. Finally, we sat down, and she said, well, Mr. President, something or other, and he said, you know, Nancy, don't, don't call me Mr. President. You just call me Barack. Uh, and January 20th, we can change all that, but please, they'll just call me uh, Barack. And she said, no, it's Mr. President. And um, uh, she never would call him anything but that. Uh, so I think that that really is something that's deeply ingrained, uh, deeply ingrained uh, into into her. Um, I, it never stopped anybody from calling her Nancy. And in fact, most people, would, most times, she would just say when they would say, "Well, do I call you Madam Leader? Do I call you Madam Speaker?" She said, "Why don't you just call me? Why don't you just call me Nancy?" Um, <laughs> so I don't think she stood in ceremony the same way in terms of the speaker. She made a point, of course, of ensuring that she not be treated any differently oh, as sure. speaker than sure. any, any other in terms sure. of the prerogatives and the and the respect that, that the speaker was due. But that I think was almost due more to the office of the speaker than to her, her personally. And also that as the first woman speaker, she didn't want there to be any suggestion that she had somehow due less uh, respect than anyone else who had occupied the office. But that, that was I, very clear to anyone who had ever been in a room with yes. her, that's for but, sure. Uh, but certainly with respect to the president, I remember that meeting very clearly with with uh, President Obama, uh, who, who wasn't even president yet, but in her mind, he had crossed that line and would, would be treated in that way. So um, to wrap up here, uh, a couple things. One, um, you know, there's going to be a new Speaker of the House. I, I suspect you have, a, have an opinion about that. Um, but before we get to that part, what are the what are the what's the couple of things if you could set up a speaker's office again that you just didn't know you had to do or hires you didn't know you had to make or you know that you could say hey uh, you know this was two things I didn't you know and I would ask the same thing for Republicans or whoever like I feel like there's a functional setup that you're like you know we really needed three staff here and we didn't have them any of those jumped in, jumped to mind I guess to some extent uh, because. I was relatively new in the leader's office. I had spent 30 years on Capitol Hill before I came to her office in 2005. Um, and, uh, but uh, it's certainly in terms of being, you know, you're not, you're not the speaker's chief of staff until you're the speaker's chief of staff. 
I guess one of the things I would have I would have done is maybe set up uh, a more extensive staffing system for working with uh, the caucus because the Democratic caucus is um, so diverse uh, that uh, I think ha although we had people assigned to talk to the Blue Dogs and talk sure. to the Progressive Caucus and talk to all the others, but I think that um, you know to some extent if you can have a better, a more extensive staffing operation that takes the burden off her, even though most people, when they come, they want to talk to her. Right. But um, I think that that probably would have been something that, that might have alleviated the burden on her somewhat, and, and also just on the few of us who basically had that uh, had that responsibility. It feels like in 08 that was, uh, by the time you got to 08, you'd figured that out and you had yes. a little more people at it. Okay, so we're recording this on the 16th of November. Um, the Republicans selected their leaders this week. Uh, Democrats will select their leaders uh, week after Thanksgiving. Uh, what's going to happen? When is this going to be broadcast? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I have a. Or how about this? Let's ask this question. Um, what are the types of things that are happening now? So, for example, I am seeing lots of letters of people endorsing people here and there. What are the types of things that happen between now and and next Wednesday, I think, or two Wednesdays from now when this happens. Mrs. Pelosi engages in one-on-one in -on -one conversations, and she does that when she's asking for votes uh, for speaker or for leader. Uh, she does that when she's asking for votes on legislation. It's one of the things that, from a staff standpoint, can be exhausting because you'll find yourself there at one and two in the morning as the last person wants to have one more conversation on a bill before it goes to the floor. But, you know, she doesn't say no to people. Uh, she doesn't uh, refuse to talk to people who are not declared supporters or even people who are opponents. Uh, she uh, is prepared to sit and spend time talking to people. I used to refer to it as as meeting boarding. I don't want to. I don't want to stop it. Yeah, yeah. But she has that. She has that ability, and of course, in doing so, she finds out what people need. And it's not some sort of crass. Well, I'll pay this or you off with this or whatever. A lot of these people who are coming into town uh, for the first time. Uh, they were not office holders previously. They were not activists in the Democratic Party. They didn't know her. They didn't really know the dynamics of Congress. And so they will sit and talk with her. And I think they will get an understanding that where it may have been, for example, easy to say, well, we need new leadership. When you see the depths of what is going to be required of the Speaker and of the Democratic Caucus, which will be very heavily scrutinized, obviously, as we go forward into 2019, and how that comes at you uh, like a gusher on January the 3rd. Yeah. The notion that you would put somebody into that position who had not faced down a president, faced down Senate leaders, worked to keep uh, the Democratic coalition together, and had done all of this and earned a reputation among independent reviewers as the most successful speaker of the last 75 years, I mean, you really would have to wonder what is in your mind that you would want to go in with somebody who was learning on the job. You know, you really need somebody who's been to the circus before. And, and that is the reason. It's not a question that she should be speaker, in my view, and I'm sure in hers, uh, because she <laughs> likes the title. And the question is, how do you arm congressional Democrats under very adverse circumstances, both in terms of their relationship with President Trump and their relationship with uh, Senator McConnell, 
in terms of preparing uh, very vulnerable Democrats. You know, we, we're going to have maybe 35 or 40 Democrats who won with less than 55 percent of the vote. Sure. As, uh, we sit, as we sit here right now, I think there are four races out under 1,000 votes. So. Yes, and, and there will be probably, uh, by my calculations, in excess of 20, where it's under 52% of them. Those are marginal seats. How do you take care of those people? How do you make sure that they don't get uh, primaries coming after them uh, immediately that force them to both raise money, but also uh, to divert their attention from the work they have to do uh, in the Congress? You really need somebody who just has their hands on the levers. And I think that's what she and that's what others are explaining. I mean, there's a reason why, notwithstanding the fact that people are throwing out a couple of different names, potentially. Uh, uh, you know, Marsha Fudge was mentioned, a former chairman of the uh, CBC. And now today, you know, there are a whole series of letters coming from CBC members saying, we love Marsha Fudge, she's terrific, but we're supporting Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I think when some of these opponents here, for example, Seth Moulton, who is, you know, he's, he's always been angry with her because she supported John Tierney, who had the seat before him uh, when he primaried her. But Pelosi is a strong traditionalist. She's not going to support someone who's primarying an incumbent, let alone an incumbent with a perfect voting, Democratic voting record. Um, you know, he says yesterday, I, I read a comment from him where he said, well, you know, she has all the skills it takes to be a speaker. I don't, but she does. Well, yeah, okay, so why would you then not put her into the role? <laughs> I think one of the things that people do need to understand, CR, is that there certainly is an understanding that we need more people coming up through the process. I mean, it's not a state secret that our leadership has been there for a while and is, is not filled with the youngest uh, uh, people in, in the caucus. Uh, but two things to keep in mind. One is they're there because of the caucus chooses them to be there because they have proven records. They have taken care of this caucus. They have helped recruit them, whether that's her or Stanley Hoyer or Jim Clyburn. The caucus votes on that every two years. You don't get to hold on to those positions because sure. you're senior or because you've had the position before. And the other is that if you look at the next layer, which is where leaders come from, Nancy Pelosi doesn't pick her successor any more than uh, the president picks the next nominee of the party. That, those people have to run and win sure. on their own. But that whole next layer, the Democratic caucus chairs and vice chairs and the DCCC chair and vice chair of that and the assistant leader and the uh, new member representative to leadership, those are all being contested. Mm -hmm. And they're all being contested by people with four, five years, uh, five terms uh, of experience. So if you want to know well, where is the next, the next generation of leadership, well, you're going to know probably the week after next. All those races are going to be determined, and you're probably going to have a group of younger, um, uh, very diverse uh, people who will be poised, uh, ready to both learn how to be leaders uh, in this caucus and in this Congress uh, and uh, and be occupying the leadership positions that, that are preparing them uh, to move when when they're, the caucus makes that decision. I just think it's very important to understand. It's the caucus's decision. They can decide anything they want. I think that when they have those conversations and they see both the, the incredible success that this leadership team has produced when they were in the majority and the enormity of the challenges are facing uh, the Democrats uh, in the House as the only Democratic branch of government, I'm just pretty confident that they will make a rational decision that uh, we have in place 
the succession, if you will, will when that, that takes place. But right now, January 3rd, 2019, uh, you need your generals in place to go to war. And fortunately, we have a really good team of them. All right, so I, can, I think I know where you are on this race, <laughs> John. John, I'm trying to be as dispassionate as I can. <laughs> Why did you do this? Tell me what you've been doing um, recently. I know you've been writing. Um, so talk to me about that. So after I left the Hill, I, I decided that I would uh, uh, I would go back where I was previously. Before I started working in Congress in 1975, I got a PhD in history uh, from Berkeley, and uh, I had never really gone into teaching. I thought that after 38 years on the Hill, a contribution I could make was to try to blend the uh, the experiences I had with the with the perspective that historical training uh, gives you. And and I don't think there are a lot of people who do that. And as I've gotten into that field, I've discovered there are very very few. So. The two things I've been doing is teaching uh, a course, a research course on congressional uh, history and congressional operations at the University of California's satellite campus, the Washington Center here in D.C., where interns come in from, from California's eight campuses and take courses. And then I just published in March a book uh, called The Class of 74, uh, Congress After Watergate and the Roots of Partisanship, which fortunately has gotten very good reviews and uh, for, even more fortunately has been published just as a new wave election and a new group of reformers has come to the Hill. And uh, it really provides uh, some historical context for both the way in which Congress can get shaken up uh, as it needs to uh, uh, periodically by the infusion of newer members, uh, but also uh, how you have to look back to that key period in the mid-70s for the roots of what become a much more partisan and polarized political environment, both on the Hill, but also within the American electorate. All right. John Lawrence, thanks for coming to 14th of June. Really appreciate it. Thanks, CR. Good to talk to you. John, for joining us at 14th of G, make sure you check out his book, and it'll be interesting to see how the rest of this leadership election goes. And then almost more fascinating or certainly more fascinating is how does a democratic congress deal with republicans in the senate and uh this republican president okay until next time i'll be right here at 14th and g